Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together this morning as the body of Christ uh, to worship you, to in the service later on, to partake of communion, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning at this time to open your scriptures and to be able to walk through them slowly and <clears throat> trying to understand what Gabriel spoke to Daniel so long ago that even has application in our lives today. So, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would illumine our minds, show us the truth, help us to understand it. Lord, in that understanding, help us not to push against it, but to accept it, to embrace it, to incorporate it into our minds and into our lives, that we might think and that we might live as you would have us to. So may you be glorified this morning as we study the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. This is week number 42 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 9, and for the last four weeks, we've been wa we walked through verse 24. You remember this verse, uh, the first thing that Gabriel says to Daniel is that God has decreed 70 weeks for the Jews and for Jerusalem, for Daniel's people and his city. <clears throat> and then Gabriel goes on to enumerate six uh, things that will be accomplished during those 70 years. You remember those are to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and profit, and the last one, to anoint the holy place. And we've talked about how three of these were accomplished by Jesus Christ in his first advent, that being to make an end of sin, to uh, atone for iniquity, and to anoint the holy place. Those three were accomplished by Jesus Christ in his first advent, as we sit here this morning, the other three, I believe, are still yet future to be accomplished. That is to finish the transgression, that is the transgression of the Jews, um, to seal up vision and prophecy, and also, um, what's the other one? <laughs> to bring in everlasting righteousness. Those three are yet future from where we sit today. And so they will be accomplished within the 70 weeks that God has decreed, uh, which means we have to somehow reconcile that with uh, 2,500 years of history and how that relates to what we're talking about. And so that we'll begin to do this morning as we move down into verse 25. And so... Hopefully, some of the understanding we have gained over the last four weeks will help us to discern what is being spoken here to Daniel by Gabriel. Now, just think for a minute. First Peter 1.12 tells us that the things that the prophets spoke, that the angels longed to look into and to understand, so here's Gabriel, 
giving a message of God, which is clearly a prophecy about what is yet to happen, don't you think he just kind of wanted to know what all this stuff meant? And he probably didn't know what it all meant. This was probably the first time any of the angels in heaven had heard this part of the prophecy of God. Because prior to this, you don't have it anywhere in the scripture. Matter of fact, after it, the only allusion you have to this is um, really Jesus Christ himself speaking. Now, some of the minor prophets clearly talk about this time, but not in this detail that is given to Daniel here. So I, I just think Gabriel was kind of like, I don't know what this means, Daniel, but here's what God told me to tell you. And I wish I knew, but I don't. Um, but notice what he says to Daniel. And that as I speak these words to you, verse 25, he says, you are to know and discern. Now that flies in the face of what a lot of people say today, is that eschatology is not worth studying. And you really don't, can't understand what it means anyway. And so there's no reason to delve into it and to try to comprehend what is being spoken of here. Well, that's not what Gabriel said. Gabriel said that you are speaking to Daniel, who wrote it down so we would have it, you are to know and discern, meaning that Daniel was to become intimate with this information, that he was to gain knowledge and understanding, that this message would help him to do those things, to discern and to know and to understand and, and to incorporate it into his thinking and the way that he viewed his world and what he thought about God. All those things, Gabriel says, this message is so that you might do that. So to those who say that eschatology is not worth studying, they apparently haven't paid attention to the words that Gabriel spoke to Daniel, that this message these next three verses, all four of these verses really, are to give us understanding that we might discern certain things. So that doesn't mean it's easy to do. That doesn't mean that you don't have to dig pretty deep to understand it and you have to go to other places in Scripture. But you can understand what is being given here. And I think as we unfold this over the coming weeks that um, hopefully it'll make sense. And we'll be able to discern and understand the message that God was giving to Daniel here. And I believe that God preserved that so that we might dig into it. And you know, that same verse back over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, not only says that the angels longed to look into the things that the prophets spoke about and that they wrote, but it also says that those prophets were not serving themselves, but they were serving you, Peter wrote to the first century church. So that you was the people of the first century. And I believe that you is also the people of the 21st century. That these things that the prophets spoke and that they wrote down were given not for them, but for us 
that we might do what Daniel did, which is discern and understand. Otherwise, Peter would have never written that, right? He'd have never written that what the prophets wrote down was for you, not for them. Although they longed to look into it, they longed to understand it. The scripture says that clearly. The angels even longed to look into it and understand it. But God didn't give them what he's given to us with the New Testament. So I think Peter understood these things. And he says that we're to understand them. So again, the, the scripture pushes against that opinion that eschatology is not really in the scriptures to be studied. It's there so that we might understand would be the counter argument. So Gabriel begins to break down these 70 weeks and he breaks them down into really three parts as you go through this whole thing. He says first there are seven weeks and then there's 62 weeks and then there is one week. And that's kind of the way he speaks to it um, as you go through, and, and we know in verse 25, after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, that the Messiah, the Prince, comes. So it should have been, if you think about this, when Jesus Christ came, when he did, in the fullness of time, the Jews should not have been caught by surprise. Because Gabriel tells them, exactly when he's going to come. He's going to come 69 weeks after the issuing of a decree. Now, they have as much, I mean, most of what we'll glean, and you'll see it today, will stay in the Old Testament. They had all of that. Some of them didn't believe in it. The Sadducees only looked at the Pentateuch, but the Pharisees used all of the prophets and all that we have, and probably a little bit more than that has been removed from the canon um, through the councils. But here, Gabriel tells Daniel exactly when the Messiah is going to come. After the issuing of a decree, you can count 69 weeks, whatever that means, and then Jesus Christ is going to come. The Messiah will be here. So, those with understanding at the time when Jesus came should have known that, should have been able to understand that. But they clearly, most of them did not. A few did. You, you can never lose sight of that. A few of them did understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Even from his very birth, there were people who understood that he was the Messiah. But the vast majority of the Jews did not comprehend that, did not accept him as that. But they should have, because here we're given a precise time when he's going to come. And as we walk through this and try to unfold it and try to look at the timing and determine what this means, I think you'll see that. That the, the timing is um, perfect. That it exactly pointed to the entrance of Jesus Christ um, into Jerusalem on the week of the Passover when he was sacrificed, the triumphal entry. This passage points towards that. And we'll try and make sense of all of that as we go through here. Now, the first thing that you have to try and do 
is understand why did the translators use the word weak? Because a literal translation of what is spoken of here as a weak would be unit of seven. I mean, that would be a literal translation have been just as good for them to write. Maybe they should have written that God has decreed 70 units of seven. Now, when you think about it and you start thinking about time, the only unit of seven that comes to mind would be a week, seven days, right? All the way back to the creation. God created on six days, on the seventh day he rested, and then all of the Mosaic law is based upon weeks. Things happen in weeks. Every seventh day is a Sabbath. And so the translators here, when they wrote down week, and I, all, all the translations that I use say week, are basically giving you their interpretation of what this means. Now, I think they ought to resist that when you come to something like this and just write 70 units of seven. I think that would have been better for them to do, but because the only unit of seven when we start thinking about time is a week, so they wrote down week. But they are basically giving you an interpretation when they do that. Now, I happen to think it's the right interpretation, but I have to have reasons for that, right? I have to be able to show you why I think that week is correct. So I'll try and do that. The, the first thing to think about, and you know, whenever you come to something like this, the best thing to do is keep reading and keep thinking about the context into which it was written. Because some things come to light. Think about what you know and what you don't know. So we know that Daniel understood the concept of day, one day. And you know that because several times in this, in, in what we've studied so far, we come to the point where he talks about or writes about a day. And the most obvious one is in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. And I think you'll remember most of this um, is that he wrote about the days, how many days will this king who is insolent, and you remember the small horn who came up out of Greece, uh, the angels were talking and they said, how long is this going to last? And over in chapter 8 and verse, if I can find this, um, Where is this at? Sorry. Yes. And so they're talking. The angels are talking back and forth to one another. And how long is this going to last? And the answer is given in verse 14 where he said, He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And evening and mornings, just like in the creation account, 
speak of one day. And usually in Scripture, that's the way days are spoken of, is evenings and mornings. Now, you'll look over in chapter, the last chapter of Daniel, in chapter 12, there's another place where they talk about days, and it's translated days, because there is a word in Hebrew for a day. And you'll see down in verse 12, 11 actually, from the time the regular sacrifice is abolished, this is talking about another time when it's abolished. We'll get into that later. The, and the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. And then it goes on to say, how blessed is the one who keeps and attains to the 1,331st day, 45 days later. So Daniel clearly understood the concept of a day, okay? And just like when we think about a week, seven mornings and evenings constitutes um, a week. And so Daniel understood days. He understood weeks, okay? Now, Gabriel didn't say weeks. He said 70 units of seven. So he could have said seven mornings and evenings, but he didn't. So he apparently doesn't mean seven mornings and evenings, even though it's translated as a week. That's not the meaning of what is written here. Now, all of this talk about time and days and cycles and units and all got me to thinking about some of this. And knowing that Easter is in two weeks, it could be puzzling as to why does Easter move each year. It's never on the same day. And there is a pattern that repeats. And this year it's very late, right? I mean, not until the 17th of April. And so why is that? Well, the usual answer given is that Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. So the vernal equinox, usually on March 21st, when the daytime hours and the nighttime hours are exactly the same. And then you have to wait for a full moon. And then once you have a full moon, that next Sunday is Easter. Now, if that full moon occurs on a Sunday, it's the next Sunday is Easter. And that's usually the answer that's given. And I kind of go, well, why is that? I mean, who came up with that definition? Well, you dig a little deeper, and I, I think you know this, that the Jewish calendar is based on the moon. Nothing else, just the moon. And so the moon cycles every 29 and a half days, which is divisible by nothing, right? 29 and a half days. And so the Jews, the way they counted a month would be when they saw a new moon, that began a new month. And that's the way they thought about it. And you know, today when you 
often when they refer to times in Jewish calendars, they, um, the months have names on them. Well, that is a foreign concept to the way that God talks about the calendar for the Jews in the scriptures. And let me show you this. I mean, there's just some interesting things here. Look back in Leviticus 23. And you'll, you'll find it interesting, I believe. Leviticus 23. This is where God is laying out all the holy convocations or where Moses wrote down the holy convocations for the Jewish people. And notice in... In, I'll just use verse 5 of chapter 23. He's talking about six days for work, and then on the seventh day is the Sabbath. There's appointed times for holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed time for them. Then verse 5, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. No name for the month given there. Well, you go, well, maybe that's just, well, look down in like verse 24, I believe it is. Yeah, in verse 24, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest and you'll blow these trumpets. And you could go on through these. Um, look at verse 27, on exactly the 10th day of the seventh month, is the day of atonement. It is to be a holy convocation. And you can go through all the scripture where Moses was writing these things down, and you'll never find a name given to a month. It's the first month, the second month, the third month, the fourth month, the fifth month, the sixth month, and so on. And you say, well, how did they know when it was a new year? Well, it worked this way. Every time the priests in Jerusalem, saw a new moon, it was a new month. Okay, and that's the way it was declared. The first month, second month, third month, every time a new moon appeared. And then, when it became spring, now the first month is very important because on the 14th day of the first month, you have Passover. Very important for the Jews to recognize that. And then the next seven days after Passover is the Feast of Booths. So you have eight days there where you have prescribed things that you're supposed to do, not eating any leaven and all that, um, that the scriptures talk about. So you have to know when the year begins. Well, here's the way it worked. Every month, every new moon, the priests in Jerusalem declare a new month. Then when it gets to be about this time of year, between spring and winter and spring, they would see a new moon and they would declare it's a new month and then they would consider, is winter still here? Are there, field, are there harvest in the fields or is the grain growing up in the fields so that we can celebrate the Passover, because you have to have a grain offering to celebrate the Passover. So if there wasn't grain in the field, then that's the 13th month. You just keep counting. 
But if there is grain in the field, it's a new year and we're going to have Passover in 14 days and it's only 12 months in that year. So they, that's the way they did it. And there's no numbers, there's no names of months, there's no nothing. You just declare months until it, you have grain in the field and that's a new year. And that's the way you count the years. And because Moses was there for them to come out of Exodus, that was the first year. And that's the way the Jews count the years, is from when they became a nation coming out of Egypt. And so you just start counting up, and you keep counting up. And every time the year either has 12 months or it has 13, depending on how the harvest and the full moon align in the springtime. And that's the way they count. Well, this, you know how I am about numbers, right? And so this got me thinking about this crazy stuff. And I, I'm sorry, I just can't help it. It's just the way I'm geared. And so I said, okay, 29 and a half days for a new moon. So where is it, how often is it that 29 and a half days equals a multiple of the number seven. So that the new moon and the 29 and a, or the 29 and a half days would correspond to the seven day weeks. And if you work through that, you'll find out that every 826 days, 29 and a half and seven will divide into 826 equally. They'll both come out to whole numbers. Okay, so that helps me a little bit. So 826 Earth days, not Jewish, because you got to remember the Jews, their month either had 29 or 30 days, just depending on was the new moon in the evening or was it in the morning. And so their months go back and forth between 29 and 30 days. And so all of their months have either 29 or 30 days, anciently. This was all changed in the fourth century AD by a man named Hillel II, who said, okay, enough of all this trying to count and all that. We're gonna, he, he defined the Jewish calendar and it changed and it's still changed today. They no longer use this ancient system that I'm talking about, but Daniel did. Today, they um, doesn't correspond to the Gregorian calendar, but it's much more similar to the Gregorian calendar. And the days of holy convocations and all are marked. They don't fluctuate like they did back then. But back then, they clearly did. And so I'm, I'm thinking about this. And so every um, 826 Earth days, 118 weeks, 29 and a half corresponds to that day. So that's about 2.29 Jewish years. So you think about this, and so in 2.29 Jewish years, because their year is 360 days, not 365 days, that when you come to that 2.29 years, the calendar has moved, according to the seasons, about 12 days. Now, you may not notice that. I mean, you may or you may not. I mean, they didn't use calendars, right? They used new moon, 
And is it cold? Is there grain in the field? Those kinds of things. So you may not notice 12 days. But after two of those kind of cycles, and now you're um, four and a half years in or something like that, and you're 20 days off, 24 days off, you're going to notice that especially in the springtime. I mean, th you think about today and 24 days from now, the temperature is going to be a lot different than it is this morning. And so you'll notice that kind of thing. So that's why probably every four years, every five, six years, somewhere in there, the Jews would declare it's still winter, and so we're going to have a 13th month in this year. And... Next month, the next new moon will be the first month of the year, and 14 days after that, we'll have Passover. And so that's the way it went all up through Daniel's time. So you, when you start talking about weeks and years, things are different from Daniel's perspective than they are from ours today. So we have to take that into our thinking when we talk about these things. And by the way, that's the real reason why Easter changes, because we have, is based upon the full moon. The first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, which announces spring, theoretically, right? And so that's, that's the real reason, is it's based upon the cycles of the moon. And all of the Jewish calendar was based on the moon, not on anything else, not on days, counting days, or any of that. It's just based upon when you see a new moon, it's a new month. It's that simple. And it's a new year if there's grain in the field. If there's not, it's not a new year. So it wasn't real complicated. And the, the months, they don't have names. It's just the first, the second, third, and the fourth. And that's the way our calendar is. So now today we're more sophisticated and we know there's 365 and a quarter days in every year. And so we're more intelligent, so we think, right? Talking about the return of Christ. Nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. And then you look at how many, how many have sat down and tried to use the calendar. Right. Because mathematically, with everything that sits underneath of it from Daniel is what you're talking about. Right. And it's like trying to use elephants to make apples. Right. Well, and that, that's why I go through all this. You've got to put your mind in the context of Daniel and how Daniel counted months and how Daniel counted years, not how we do today. Because this wasn't written to us, to, I mean, it's for us today, but it was written to or given to Daniel in the mid-6th century B.C. And so you, that, that's where you have to go to understand what is being talked about here. Okay, that still doesn't explain, is it... Oh, what the week means, right? We still haven't determined that. Well, like I said, I do believe that the concept of a week is correct here. 
And so we are talking about 490 periods of time. And even the scripture says that, right? 70 units of seven. That's 490. Seven times 70 is 490. So units of time. So you have to determine what that unit is. And again, you look at context and what you've seen before or what is written after this in Daniel. And so the best place, I think, to go to do this is back in chapter 4. And chapter 4 of Daniel is the proclamation of King Nebuchadnezzar about the time in which he went insane. Okay? And we talked about some of these things, but I want to remind you about them. Um, let me find the right verses here. You can see it in verse 16, where the vision is first given. Let the mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. So here they translated it different, right? They didn't say a week. They translated it as seven periods of time. And you'll see that again down in verse 23 of this chapter. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. And then down in verse 25, a couple, two verses later, you'll see the same thing, um, seven periods of time. That's what I just read, right? Sorry. And then down in verse 32, you'll see the same thing. When Daniel's given the interpretation, he says, and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you. Okay, so here's we have seven periods of time, similar to 70 units of seven, right? That seven number. Okay, and when you, does that help us any? Well, you remember when we talked about this, there's this verse that once this happens to the king, verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until... Okay, so this is the seven periods of time. Until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So that equates to the seven periods of time. That he ate grass like an animal until his hair had grown like eagle's wings and his nails had grown like bird's claws. Now we talked about this when we were there. Hair typically grows at about a half an inch a month six inches a year. So in seven years, his hair would have grown 42 inches. 
So he would have had hair that was all matted and nasty because he never washed it, right? He's an animal. And so it would have been matted like the feathers of an eagle's wings. And then his claws, his nails, nails grow at about a tenth of an inch a month. Okay, so in a year, they grow 1.2 inches. So in seven years, they would have grown eight inches. Now, if your nails are going to grow for seven years, they're going to begin to curl. And so they look like bird's claws, because he's not going to clip them, right? He's an animal living in the field. Now, if you take it to be anything other than years, you're going to come up with crazy numbers. You know, um, that his hair is going to be down laying on the ground and his nails are going to be not just uh, eight inches long, but they're going to be 16 or something crazy. So I think this seven periods of time for Nebuchadnezzar, because of this description given about his hair and about his fingernails, is seven years. It makes sense. If you say it's seven weeks, that doesn't make any sense. If you say it's seven months, that doesn't make any sense. His nails haven't grown that much. But if you take seven years and you got eight-inch nails and 42-inch long hair, then it makes sense. So I think the seven periods of time for Nebuchadnezzar are years. And therefore, I think the seven units of, the, the units of seven, speaking of time, for Daniel over in chapter 9 are years. Now, that's not dogmatic. You can't say, oh, that's absolutely what it means. But when we get to the, the decrees that are given and we count 490, not weeks, but years, it'll be very surprising where we end up. And so you have this now, and as we go through the sequences of history and the decrees that were made by the Persian kings and what they meant to the Jewish people and what was decreed is very important. And then you go 490 years from those decrees, you, I just tell you, you'll wind up around 30 BC, uh, AD, which there are people who calculate it more strictly than I do who um, say it is exactly 32. Now, we'll also look at, because the scriptures in the New Testament give us clues of when Jesus Christ was crucified concerning the full moon. And so we'll try and put those things together that we talked about this morning along with what the New Testament wrote about when Jesus Christ was crucified according to the new moon. And then we'll take these 490 years from the decrees that are given to try and determine, does that point to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? And I think it does. But you have to look at all the decrees that were given, right? Because I'll tell you, there were not one. There was at least three, <clears throat> and there may have been four. <clears throat> and they're detailed in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you know where we're going next time, if the Lord wills. We're going to Ezra. 
so that we can see these decrees that were given by the Persian kings when they said them, because it just so happens that every time they made a decree, it tells you what year it is in the seventh year or in the 20th year, those types of things of the king. And we know when the kings became kings because of the cuneiforms, which declare when the kings became kings. So we'll try and put all that together and see which decree we're talking about and then go 490 years in the future and the Jews should have been expecting their Messiah. In 144,000 of them. Which is how the Jews will know what family they belong to. Because God will tell them. Now, the, the question becomes, and this is a, something interesting to think about, where's the Ark of the Covenant today? And where are the records from the first century of the genealogies? Because they exist. And so all of that's got to mesh together after the tribulation or maybe during the time of the tribulation, especially the first three and a half years, so that the Jews will know how to worship and who the Levites are and who the sons of Zadok are. Because that's very important to how they worship. So that has to be discovered for them to properly worship. So there's, there's a lot that is coming. And that, that verse you read, the last part of it, where God bestows it on whomever he wishes, reflects back to the prayer of Daniel in chapter 2, where Daniel is praising God. And in verse 21, of chapter 2, he says, It is he, God, who changes the time and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives it to whoever he wants to. Even to, this Even to evil. I mean, I mean, evil King Nebuchadnezzar. He was not a good guy. Now, I believe, I could be wrong, that he was converted after his period of insanity because he says amazing things about God in heaven, and he gets it right. Finally, God's grace poured out on him so he would go insane and then come to his senses and recognize the most high God. And the same thing will be true in the tribulation time. 
that God will dispense His grace, and there will be people who will recognize Jesus Christ for who He is, who had never recognized Him before, mainly the Jews. So there, there's a lot to come here, and we'll walk through these um, decrees of the Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, very carefully. And there's this amazing verse in Ezra that puts all three of those guys in the same verse and says why they made their decrees. It's an amazing verse. And anybody who studied it and misses that verse misses the whole point of all the decrees. Yeah. Because at that point, the worship scene of the Lamb all, and all, yeah. You begin to realize that as hard as it is to fathom in our finite minds, the angels and the saints that are in heaven are now seeing the culmination right. of what has been in the next epoch or the millennial reign at which Christ is going to sit on his throne. Well, and it's what the martyrs who are underneath the, the um, throne have been crying for, and all of a sudden, here it is. And think about so it. you can just imagine. What, they're, what, I, what I think they're saying, and, and again, as you say, they are saying, when, how long, Lord, before we can go back right. to this planet? And be vindicated. We're always thinking, I'm going to heaven. Mm. Yeah, not only do they want to come back, they will come back. It's not just a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's reality. It's the ultimate reality. So we'll quit for today, but um, there's more to come. Thanks for your time.